0: You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate, with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now, your hosts, former NFL fullback, Brian Leonard, and Anthony Scandariato.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Discovering Multifamily podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Scandariato, with President Properties, And today, we have a special guest with us, uh, Joseph Amati and he's with uh, Triarch, uh Real Estate Partners, and uh, he actually has a pretty interesting story. He's been in the business for um, a little over t- 10 years, uh, and um, he's going to talk to us today about um, how to choose and vet uh, potential sponsors uh, if you're a passive investor looking to get involved in, um, you know, multifamily syndications, which is what... Uh, Joe specializes in here uh, today, and um, we want to hear a little bit more about his underwriting process and also um, his educational platform, which uh, uh, he's going to actually be rolling out, which will be specifically catered towards um, LP passive investors to um, just become more educated and uh, fluent with um, multifamily syndications. So thank you so much for coming on, Joe. I appreciate it.
0: Hey man, glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Great. So you want to talk about your company, and then kind of you know we'll, we'll dig into um, from an LP side of lo- the view of looking at multifamily syndications.
0: Sure. So my company, Trial Growth State Partners, um, we've been around since 2013. Uh, it consists of myself, my other two partners, uh, Carrie and Deborah. Between the three of us, we've owned and are operated over 43,000 units and about 1.7 billion in assets, uh, mostly on the property management side of things. I've personally acquired uh, about 600 million, sorry, 600 uh, doors worth of units, and done uh, about um, on average, we're we're doing north of 20,000 a door in renovations. So we're doing some pretty big rehabs on deals. My first rehab was a thirty thousand per door rehab, so I kind of got the baptism by fire uh, on that first deal, and uh, just continued doing it thereafter. But our, our uh, as as a company, though, by twenty thirty, we're looking to grow our portfolio to over twenty thousand units. Currently, have about eleven 1, hundred units, um, and uh, yeah, we're here based in Houston, Texas. So, uh, so that's that's us. That's Triarch and uh we today you know i really wanted to talk about uh kind of the, the vetting of the sponsors you know with you know 506c and the there's been just a proliferation of syndicators you know every every day there a new one seems to join the industry and which which is just a good thing you know i'm glad seeing people discover financial freedom and try and get in so on the one side it's it's great that people are doing this and uh, and they're learning how to do all this, and, and and learning how to, you know, acquire, operate, sell, make money in multifamily. Um, but the key word here is that they're they're all still learning. There's a lot of people that are learning the industry, and so the risk you run as a passive investor is you're getting into a deal with a guy who's still learning himself. And while the industry is great and it's pretty resilient, you can still um, lose. Well, I'd say. There's a very good chance you're not going to hit those pro forma uh, numbers when you're on a, a syndication with a first-time guy because it's just, uh, you, know, you know, multifamily is the hardest commercial real estate asset there is to underwrite. It has the most expenses of anything, of any class, particularly like when you look at office, you look at retail, stuff like that. They're all triple net, meaning the tenant pays all those expenses, taxes, et cetera. Multifamily, no, you've got to underrate all that stuff. So it's it has a lot of challenges to it, and if you're off on any number of those things, you know you can skew a couple of points on the on the IRR, and you know you make a couple of mistakes. Next thing you know, you're in the you know the low teens instead of the high teens. Um, so I think uh, with that, investors have to be just extra cautious when going into deals and some of the things that I, I see a lot of is, you know, people tout their experience um, where they're saying, Oh, we've got, you know, like us oh, earlier, I come on. I said, uh, well, I didn't say it, but our company, we've got 80 years of combined experience between three individuals. So on average it's 23 years. Um, but a lot of times what you're seeing is, Oh, you got 20 years experience, but it's regards five people. So like the most experienced guy might've been doing it for five years. And again, nothing wrong with that. I had, you know, I had one year experience when I first started out. Actually, I actually had zero. I mean, we all start off with, with something, right? And um, so, I, I think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with people starting out. I'm just saying you got to be, you know, aware of that. And as long as you're aware that, hey, they're saying they got 10 years, but it's across, or 20 years, whatever it is, just know that, okay, well, the, the biggest guy, he's only got this many years of experience. And what you really look for on the experience side is that if you're going into a five-year deal, you would hope that the guy's been doing this for at least five years. Five. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise he's in, you know, new territory and, and so are you. So those are, that's one of the things I'd look for is just ideally, I mean, this is ideal. We want 10 plus years. I just hit 10 years myself. So I'm not saying that just cause I'm at 10, I'm just saying because I'm at 10 now and I know how much I know and how much I've grown over to 10 years. And there, there are certain things that doesn't matter how many podcasts you watch, how many books you read, how many, just straight up acquisitions you've done. Uh, cause I've also seen guys with these massive portfolios, but part of the experience process is you've just got to cook and you just got to marinate in the industry for a certain amount of time uh, and see a certain amount of things go through to where really, you really kind of get a grip on it. Um, so, you know, I'm not easily impressed by, by unit counts, for example, cause you know, I know a guy here in Houston who grew you know, 20,000 units in five years. Uh, and so that's, you know, in one regard, you know, I view that as an extremely dangerous thing because you're, you're starting out. I mean, in his situation, he had like seven years prior experience in the industry. So that's one thing, but I see a lot of guys that are going in hard, you know, they're buying nationwide, big portfolios, two, 3000 units. And they just started like a year ago, two years ago. And the risk you run is that, you know, so you're still learning. And so when you're learning, it means you're making mistakes and if you're making mistakes on those first thousand, three thousand units, um, by the time you recognize the mistake, maybe now you're at over 3,000 units and hopefully it's not a big mistake. Uh, but still, you've bought a whole bunch of units that you're now having to pay the consequence on because you continued to make the same mistake and you didn't realize it until you're at that 3,000th unit. So that's that's the risk I say you gotta be cautious of is these guys who just, you know, come out of nowhere and they grow these massive portfolios. It's you know, it can be extremely risky. Um, so those are two of the items I see. Just one checking the experience, two, be careful of the fast growth because you want people to you know, it's just a it's a long term thing. Real estate is a long term investment. Everybody knows this. And so to the idea of a get rich quick in real estate, it just doesn't even make sense. It's hypocritical. Um, so to see these, uh, so when you're making investments and you're, and you're doing anything in multifamily or real estate in general, it should always be with a long-term approach, unless you're, you know, trying to flip a house or something, but that's, you know, it's a completely different scale. Uh, but speaking of houses, I think that's important to know. Cause I've, uh, you know, it's a natural transition to go from houses to multifamily. Um, that said though, it's two different things. So you could have Thirty years experience in in housing. When you transition over to multifamily, you've got zero years experience multifamily. So make sure that when you're uh, assessing somebody's experience, that they're truly talking about multifamily experience, and they're not talking about, oh well, you know, they did, you know, they built houses for ten years or something, and they're counting that towards their, It's a completely different animal. Everything's different. The only similarities are they both have roofs, they have air conditions, and there's some physical aspects that are the same. But operationally, business-wise, different animal. Um, so, what do you? Am I, am I? Am I striking a chord with you? Man, are you? I see you shaking your head. So, I'm thinking I'm. I'm nodding. So,
1: I'm. I'm agreeing with everything you're saying.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so
1: I guess to kind of piggyback on that a little bit. So, when you're as an LP investor, when you're evaluating coming into a new multifamily syndication. Um, you ideally, if it's an asset class that they're pitching, you ideally want to see experience in that asset class and the track record, um, you know, via case studies. Yeah. You know, I guess, what would you say for a newer sponsor that's trying to get in the industry or maybe, maybe they work yeah. in the industry for somebody else. So here's
0: the caveat, right? I see where you're going with this. And so this is how you break in and this is how I broke in. Uh, so I, I well, My entry into industry is a little different in that. So I'm an engineer by trade. I worked for Exxon for five years, worked overseas, made a bunch of money. And me and a fellow Exxon employee, we went and we bought an apartment complex cash. We just, I mean, we put equity and debt on it, but still it was just us. We didn't syndicate it. I didn't know about syndication. This was 2010, 2011. Um, And so we just went and we did it. And that's how I got in. I read a few books and I bought apartment complex. And then I started syndicating after that, but when I did start syndicating, I joined a local real estate group, and at the time, their uh, part of their requirements were, if you're a first time syndicator, um, you they they cap you on what you they they limited what we could charge the passive investors if we wanted to remain a member of the club. Uh, that was part of their guidelines. Was okay, you're a first time guy. You could only charge this much on a carried interest or this much on a promote structure, and they did that for two reasons. One, it was to protect the investors. But uh, well, I guess that was the primary reason to protect the investors. And and two, you just don't have the experience, right? So, uh, and so I I preach the same thing. You know, I think it was very wise for them to do that because it, it does protect investors, but also from a syndicator's perspective, it protects your track record because you're gonna exit this deal and you can now tout that, oh, we got a 22% IRR. Well, part of that's probably because maybe you only took a 5% carry or a 10% carry on the deal and you gave a lot of the money back to the LP and that's okay. It's okay to, on your first two, three, four, five deals, give the LP you know a healthier portion or said another way, don't max out, you know what I guess the market rate is for a GP, because you know part of what attracts limited partners to you as a as a syndicator is your track record, you know, a, a large part of it. So they, I mean, the first thing that most LPs are looking at is is you. They look at your background, your experience, your team, and then they look at the deal, or at least that's the way they're supposed to be doing it. Um, Versus, I mean, a lot, I know nowadays people can go and vice versa, but the point of conversation is a large portion of the look is your track record. And what better way to juice your track record than just to give the first couple of deals away, so to speak, give them a lower, take a lower cut on it, and then make your money on the back end. You know, when you do a deal of six, seven, eight, go ahead and, you know, increase your fee structure on those. And you'll, you'll be okay. I mean, you're not going to lose a terrible amount of money. If anything, you're going to save a lot of money because now you've done five deals. Maybe it's five years later. You've taken, you've taken the time. You've gone slow, done it the right way. Uh, and, and you know, one of the things that they told us incessantly was, you're only one bad deal away from ending your career in this industry. Uh, and I still believe, I think that's more true today than it was in the past because, you know, we didn't know that cap rates were going to keep compressing in 2011. Uh, but we know for sure now they're definitely not compressing. If anything, they're expanding. And so we're all, you know, flighting, you know, f- we're all looking all over the country to try and chase yield uh, because there's just so little uh, yield out there. So you're having to buy these pretty tight deals. Um, and so that said, it's, it's very easy. You make mistakes on these tight deals you could end up, you know, I don't think you'll lose money, but I don't think you're going to be making, you know, 15, 20% IRRs. You might be worst case scenario, single digit IRR. Everybody gets, there. I, don't, I can't, I'm not imagining a scenario where people lose money, but you're certainly going to piss off a lot of people if you don't hit your number. Uh, so again, what better way to ensure success, drop your GP fees on the first couple of deals. That way, when you go to that LP, you say, look, yeah, I've only been doing this for two years. And because of that, I'm giving you this sweetheart deal. Sure, so I think of- that's the, that's the way you break in. Sure. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Um, mm. So in terms of more educational knowledge for LPs, what else do you um, recommend when evaluating a yeah. sponsor?
0: So I created a course during COVID uh, that helps address well, a big issue I saw out in the market. And that. Uh, there's there's a lot of educational courses out there. You can take boot camps to, with anybody. You just type in multifamily education, you're going to get a ton of boot camps. Uh, but the problem with all of those courses is that they are all from the perspective of a multifamily syndicator that's teaching you how to become a multifamily syndicator. So they're teaching you how to underwrite a property, how to make a valuation and, and do everything that's involved with being a syndicator. And part of that is by having, and they're also assuming that you have access to the same data that a syndicator was, which is the T12, the rent roll, a complex underwriting model. But the reality is passive investors don't have all that. they You're not going to get a, a rent roll. You're not going to get a trailing 12 and you're not going to get access to their underwriting model. The only thing that you're going to get as a passive investor is a 20 to 30 page investment package, a limited partnership agreement and a PPM. That's it. You've got to look at this uh, investment package. And on that, you're probably going to have one, maybe two pages of numbers of actual like deal numbers based on what I've seen. Typically the rest of it's all just kind of talking about how pretty the market is, here's some photos of the property, here's our team, here's what we're going to do. And then it typically winds up with like one page, summary pro forma, here's year over year numbers with a list of our income assumptions, our list of our income and expense items. And that's it. And then you are looking at this PDF, it's not even a native Excel file, and you got to look at it and with your best knowledge, be like, okay, that looks all right. You know, but So what I do in this course is I teach you how to take that one page and break down all those numbers line by line and determine if a deal is good or bad. These are, I I developed custom calculations and formulas for you to do exactly that. And it's not going to give you the right answer, but what it will tell you is "Mm, there's probably a mistake here uh, or no, this looks good. This is in range and will allow you as a passive to make a better investment decision on that deal. Or if, if you say, look, I really like it, maybe they're showing 25% IRR, something just crazy. Uh, and you, you know, there's probably something wrong with the numbers. It'll also allow you to go ahead and calculate, okay, this is probably what it is. And then you can ad- calculate what your adjusted return, which what your realistic return will be. And if you're comfortable with that realistic return, even though they might be marketing a higher return, then you might still do the deal. But it's all about awareness and knowledge and making, uh, uh, well said of the way in the eyes of the SEC as an accredited investor, you're supposed to know how to do this stuff anyway. So they're already assuming that you know how to do this. But based on my experience, a lot of people don't know how to do this, um, and it's not that they, they don't, but they know how to do it from a syndicator's perspective. They don't necessarily know how to do it from a passive investor's perspective. And to be honest, for myself, it took me a while to like figure it out. Like, look at these numbers and, you know, I've, I've been doing this for 10 years. We've underwritten hundreds and hundreds of properties here in Houston. And so we're really good at the underwriting side. And it's, it's a truly challenging thing to be able to go in and figure out without having the data where the mistakes are. Uh, and so with this course, investors will be able to do that. Uh, and we're hoping we'll be able to help a lot of people, uh, save, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars by going in and, uh, and choosing the winners and the losers a little bit better than they currently are. Sure. That makes
1: sense. And that's, it's actually something that, um, I do as well in terms of if we're sending out a PPM or investment summary, whatever it is, I usually provide a simple Excel model it's fluid, so if they want to play with the numbers, feel free. And they see our, you know, our returns, and they see their returns. It's very, yeah. very dynamic. So I think it's uh, I think the course would be good for, um, to help educate more passive investors to determine whether it's a good deal or not. And do you, as a company, kind of stick with the mantra? Because I, I, I hear this a lot, um, even in my company. You know, it's almost like you underpromise and deliver. Because you mentioned some of the IRRs, like. I probably never show my investors a 20, 25% IRR. Um, I've, I've blown it out of the water before, but I would never go out of the gate with that. Is that also,
0: uh, almost a red flag, I, if I, an operator you, sends
1: know, you a 20% return?
0: I, I think it's an experience thing because I know yeah. when I got started in the industry, I would show a big return. And of course there was errors in my underwriting in the beginning. There's just like there's errors in everybody's underwriting when they first start out. And that's why every deal is so amazing, you know? Um, and so really, I was I was really focused that towards those beginner and I'm, not pick, I'm just picking on this podcast, but, you know, they, they tend to show higher returns, uh, either just because they, they don't know or there's a mistake somewhere and they're just thinking it's correct. Uh, but yeah, for us personally, when we're underwriting deals, if it's more than like 18 or 19, we're, we're looking at it and making sure that everything makes sense. Uh, and we try to be more conservative for the exact same reason. You, you show somebody, uh, you know, a, a 30% IRR and you land on a 23, they hate you. But if you show them an 18 and you get on a 23, then you're their hero. So sure. we'd rather be their hero. So we just play it conservatively and we, you know, we go in and we, we get, you know, a nice, uh, you know, we, we typically get I think our lowest IRR today is 21%. So oh. we've done. Well, but that's because we do these big value adds uh, for the most part, so that, that skews our numbers up a lot. Um, but yeah, no, I was just—I I find that on the guys just starting out, they try to use a higher IRR to attract people. That's part of the, one of the things they, one of the tools they have, is that they'll use the the wow factor of a deal, like oh look, you can get all this. But I guess what they don't re- what they don't realize is that when you show somebody that, they actually, from my experience, has the exact opposite reaction. You show somebody a 22% or 23% IRR on a deal, they are automatically skeptical because everybody else is showing them you know, mid-teen IRRs and all of a sudden you're showing somebody a high teen. Uh, so that said, though, I guess the caveat would be if you were to respond to them and say, yeah, but I've lowered my GP fee by whatever amount. And then they're like, oh, that makes sense. So I guess it depends on the reason why your IRR is high, but lowering a GP fee isn't going to adjust the IRR five basis points or anything. It'll it'll increase it up a little bit incrementally, but uh, that said, as long uh, you just got to be uh, no, we've not seen many deals that high except for the the beginning guys. So. Sure, awesome. How can people find you, Joe? Uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Otherwise if they're interested in the course, I can send email to info at com. We're going to be, uh, the website comes out here soon. Uh, and we're just taking a waiting list right now. So far has been a lot of interest. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, yeah. So LinkedIn is, uh, I think I feel like most people are on LinkedIn. Uh, and it's also nice cause I, I get, I get a lot of email like everybody else. And, uh, if you, if people, uh, I tend to think a lot of spam email. So if I all of a sudden I get random emails from people versus if I get just a connect invite and a message saying, Hey, you know, I saw you on Anthony's podcast, you know, I, I tend to respond a little bit more.
1: Sure, absolutely. So there'll be a link to um, Joe's LinkedIn on all our social media um, uh, broadcasts for this particular podcast as well as his website for his company. And then hopefully, by the time this releases uh, website for his educational new educational platform for passive investors, which uh, I probably want to sign up for too, because I'm very curious myself, which you have to say. Um, so again, uh, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I definitely want to have you on again uh, in the foreseeable future. And I uh, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.